You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for March 2007. Today's episode is entitled, Tribute to a Commissioning Agent. What facilitates the development of a world-class organization? Listen to the inspiring and surprising story behind one of the great companies in America today. You know the founders of this company, but you probably don't know the man who voluntarily took on the role of being their commissioning agent. Without him, the company would have probably never existed. God created all this stuff. He created the capability that we're developing, the technology that we're discovering. You know, we're not creating this technology. We are discovering technology. Because God created this world, and he tells us, I made man to rule this world. And I know this world is challenging, so I'm going to put enough of my attributes in man so man can rule this world and glorify me in the process. In most paradigms of Christianity today in this country, that's almost a foreign concept. Because if you ask people what Christianity is about, what they're going to tell you is the Great Commission. And if they have a better understanding of it, they'll tell you the Great Commission is about discipleship. But the reality is discipleship is about preparing people to do what we were originally put here to do, which is to rule God's creation. And as we do that, we are going to make disciples and we're going to bring people to Christ and do all the good things that that we ought to be doing, but we're not going to be neglecting the physical universe. We've effectively given the physical universe over to the enemy. And we've called that, that's, that's his territory, and our domain is the church, and we're trying to separate them. And when we do that, we become very dualistic in our lives. And so we separate church and work, and basically we become poor workers, poor business owners. We become ineffective in the world, and we become ineffective in ruling God's creation. So we've got to get a new vision of this. So today I want to do a tribute to a commissioning agent. Every one of you, every one of us, needs to be a commissioning agent. And a commissioning agent is one who understands a kingdom perspective and is acting on it. I want to tell you a story about a man, and I'll tell you right now, I don't know if this man was a Christian. In my research of this man, I have not been able to uncover that he was. He may have been. But as far as I know, he was not. Lewis moved his family from Indiana to Palo Alto, California. Now, Lewis was a professor. He was a social sciences professor. His specialty was child prodigies. So he joined the faculty of Stanford and became a very eminent scholar out there. He was part of the group that developed the Stanford IQ test that some of you may be familiar with. Well, obviously his son, his son was named Fred. Fred obviously picked up the genes of his father. He was a great thinker. He was a great scholar in his own right. He didn't choose the social sciences. He chose engineering. When he was 14 years old, he and his good buddy, Herbert Hoover Jr., decided they would be ham radio operators. And so they, they actually got their, uh, their transmitter and started being ham radio operators in their teen, teenage years. He went to college, Fred did, and got degrees in chemistry and then a degree in engineering. And then he went to MIT and got a Ph.D. in engineering in 1924. Now, in those days, Eastern schools were it. The other schools were kind of second class. So if you really wanted to have a quality education, you weren't going to get a Ph.D. at Stanford. You were going to go to MIT or one of the Eastern schools and get a Ph.D., and so that's what he did. 
While he's at MIT, he gets enamored with the scholastic atmosphere he sees there. He's really drawn into that. So he decides he, would be, he wants to join the faculty of MIT, and then he, he contracts TB. Well, he followed his father's lead. He knew he couldn't stay in the cold climate of the Northeast. He had to go to a, a warm, uh, friendly environment so he could try to recover from this disease. So he decided to go back to Palo Alto, and in 1924, he found himself back in his home, with his parents and trying to recover from this disease. For the next three years, he fought this disease. He fought it very well. But during that time, he was able to do a little bit of work. And Stanford, the engineering department at Stanford, offered him a part-time job of teaching. So he began teaching one class. He taught that for three years. At the end of three years, he was well enough to be able to take on a full-time position. So he became an assistant professor of engineering in 1927. Shortly after that, he wrote his first textbook. It was called Radio Engineering. And he offered a graduate class in radio engineering, which he used his textbook. In 1933, he was teaching his class, and he ran into four young men that looked very promising to him. Now, two of the young men were, were not graduate students. They were undergraduates. And one of them was clearly a stellar student. This particular young man had been on the Stanford football team. He was an end. Uh, he was a tall, lanky guy. Just a really very all-American kind of guy, and he had great grades. He was a wonderful student, great attitude, and Fred looked at him and said, you know, I think you ought to take my graduate course. In fact, I'll let you take it. And this was a real privilege to be able, as a senior, to take a graduate course, so he did. And there was another guy named Barney, and Barney was not quite as the figure of this football player, so... The professor looked at him and, you know, checked him out a little bit and said, Barney, here's the deal. You know, you're kind of on the line here, man. I'm not sure. But if you'll make the highest grade on the first test, I'll let you stay in the class. So he let Barney in the class on that, on that contingent. And Barney not only made the highest grade on the first test, he made the highest grade on every test. He was an outstanding student. And so Barney and these other three gentlemen became fast friends, and they became a group that very clearly distinguished themselves from the other students in the class. So Fred looked at them and said, you know, those guys are going to go someplace. So he began to talk to them and give them vision. He said, guys, you need to understand the opportunities out there. He says, this whole technology of, of, of radio, it's huge. Where it's going to go? Electronics is going to be huge. And you guys are bright. You're capable. Furthermore, I know a little bit about business, and I see business potential in you guys. You guys need to think about being in business together. Y'all would be a great team. You would complement each other. You would be strong. This guy's strong in one thing. You're strong in another. The combination is going to be powerful. You guys really need to get a vision for that. So he really began to excite them about the possibility of starting a company, a really great company that could go a long way. Now, during those times, most of your, your engineering uh, companies were, were owned by basically technicians that decided they wanted to go into business for themselves, so they were not highly educated people. So what you have here is what the professor sees is a tremendous opportunity for people that are trained in theoretical engineering to go out there and really do an outstanding job as entrepreneurs. So when they graduated in 34, great vision and, and all kinds of energy and zeal, but they have no money. And the Depression has got a lock on the country. There's no money. There's no jobs. And so these guys now, they've got to go support themselves. Got a vision, but no way to realize the vision. So they scatter all over the country taking jobs. Now, Fred was not going to be deterred. And this is, Fred's an incredible guy. I don't, I have never seen a professor like Fred. 
He saw a vision. He imparts the vision to these guys, and he won't give up on it. I mean, they've all left. They're, they're no longer Stanford students. They're gone. But he will not give up on it. He keeps encouraging and encouraging. Finally, in, thir- in 1937, in the summer, two of the guys come back to, to Palo Alto because Fred's just badgering them to death. They come back to have a little fun in the summer, and they decide to have a meeting. I think part of the reason they had the meeting was just to placate Fred. So they sit down, and they actually had notes of this meeting. It was an organizational meeting of what they call the Engineering Service Company. And they didn't have a clue what they were going to do. But they kept notes, and they talked about ideas. What kind of electronic products can we make? And uh, they even talked about this new invention called television. And they knew there had to be some potential for that invention, but they couldn't see it at that time. But they, they made it a, a comment in their notes that we need, they need to watch that. So anyway, they had this meeting. I think that made Fred feel a little better. Then they, went, they left. They went back to their respective jobs, and so Fred goes to work again. And the whole year of 37, the, the school year of 37 going into 38, he's working to figure out how to get these guys back together. So finally, he's able to secure a fellowship for one of the guys that's on the East Coast to get him back. Now, the guy on the East Coast is working for GE, making $90 a month as an engineer for GE. How about that? Of course, you could live on a dollar a day during the Depression. Wouldn't that be cool? Live on a dollar a day? So anyway, he says, hey, I've got a fellowship for you. You can come back here and work on this new, new thing, this new Clastron tube. How many of you know what a Clastron tube is? It's the heart of your radar. That's the technology behind radar. Russ Varian was at Stanford working on this technology back in 1937, and he needed some help, so he, he got some fellowship money, and Fred got this guy to come back from GE on a basically sabbatical and work with Russ Varian to develop that Clastron tube. In the meantime, he got one of the other guys who's on the East Coast as well to come back, and he, he was hired by a San Francisco doctor to develop some medical equipment. So he's at least got them back together where they can begin to talk. And so they begin to talk and commiserate, and finally they're, they're convinced by Fred, we really need to figure out how to, a way to do this. So they rent a house together, effectively. And in the back of this house, there's a garage. And so they turn that garage into their workshop. And so they continue doing their, their jobs by day and at nights and weekends. They're, they're tinkering, trying to figure out what to do. They didn't have any products, so they were doing contract engineering. And they did some interesting things. For example, they, they developed a, a foul line indicator for a bowling alley. And they developed some temperature controls for air conditioning equipment. They developed a motor con- to control the uh, a telescope at Lick Obser- Observatory. And just odds and ends things like that, just little projects. You don't make much money doing that, but you stay together and you're talking and trying to figure out things. And finally, in the spring of 1938, Fred's continuing to, to press him on this vision, and he gives him a project to develop an audio oscillator in his lab. Now, get this. These are not students of Stanford. They're coming into the professor's lab. The professor is coaching them. And he's simplifying the theory to make it easier for them to work with and letting them use his equipment to develop this audio oscillator. And so they develop this audio oscillator and they look at it and say, wow, this is pretty cool. It's pretty inexpensive and it really works well. So what can we do with that? And so they got an idea. Let's go to a radio engineers convention and see. So they do that in November of 38. They go to this radio engineers convention and at that convention they got warmly received. I said, well, that's great. You know, you go to conventions and people say nice things and give you cards and everything. You come back and you still have no orders. So what do you do? So here comes Fred again. Here's 25 people that need this product. Here's their names and addresses. And I will, I will, I will send a letter ahead to let them know that you're going to contact them. So they prepare their first marketing campaign, 25 letters. That sounds like a real thorough marketing campaign. 
25 letters go out. They don't have much expectation. Guess what? They get orders back with checks. Anybody ever got that? Orders back with a check. And one company, Disney, orders eight. And so they're saying, wow, they sold these things for $71 a piece. They thought they were in hog heaven. So, man, maybe this thing's going. It's going to work. And so finally, in January of 1939, they have the courage to launch. So they quit their jobs and they devote themselves full-time to this new business venture. But at that time, they decided, well, you know, this, the term engineering service company, that's not a very good name. We need to come up with another name. So they said, well, let's just name it after our surnames. Oh, that's a great idea. So they flipped a coin, and Bill won the coin flip, and so they named the company Hewlett-Packard. And so Hewlett-Packard got launched because of a professor named Fred Terman, who would not give up on commissioning these men to do what he saw God had put in these men. Now, whether or not Fred really understood God had put it in there, I don't know. But he saw the potential, and he would not give up on commissioning these men to go do that. Well, that's not the only thing to do, he did. You know, he had great vision. He helped a lot of students like that. He helped the community. The community there of Palo Alto, California, was a sleepy community. There wasn't much going on. In fact, it was a farm community. And he looked out there at Stanford. Stanford had 8,000 acres of land. They didn't use hardly a, you know, 10% of it. And he said, hey, guys, uh, we ought to do something to help these young entrepreneurs that are getting started, like HP. You know, they need some help. So he said, why don't we do an industrial park? You know, let, it, let them uh, use some of the university land. Well, in the grant giving the university the land, there was a stipulation that, that, you, that the university could not sell any of the land. So Fred's clever. We won't sell it. Long-term lease. This is an engineer. I mean, he's a creative guy who does not give up. And you're saying, what's this got to do with being a professor? Well, it has very little to do with the professor. It has everything to do with being a commissioning agent. You get a vision, and you see what somebody's supposed to do, and you begin to go out there and impart that vision. That's what we should be doing as Christians. You know, every one of us is a commissioning agent. Every one of us. You know who commissioning agents are? Parents, teachers, employers, pastors, all these different people, these roles that we all play in life, these are all commissioning roles. And if we could see beyond ourselves, if we could think 100 years out and say, okay, what's it going to be like then? And what can I do to enable the people then to better walk with God? And do you understand that we are able to walk with God at at an incredible level with things like, like cell phones? And the Internet, that facilitates our ability to communicate, to disseminate information, to stay connected. These are tremendous tools to be used in the kingdom. And so if we think about that and think about how we can help the next generation 100 years out, this is kingdom work. And this is what commissioning agents are. In fact, I would submit to you that the greatest commissioning agent anybody has is their parents. The problem is we we don't see that. What happens when a child is born... Have you ever noticed there's no tag on the child? Anybody notice that? My child was born. I looked for the tag. I didn't find the tag. You know, know, it's supposed to be a tag on there, you know, made by God, 1972. You know, model such and such, model Lisa number, whatever. Didn't find the tag. So what God did was gave me a grand research project. And the project is to understand why God has made this child. My grandson was just born on October 13th. 
my first grandson. And it is an incredible experience to have a grandson. I wrote him a letter on that day. And in that letter, I pledged to him that I would do everything within my power to help him discover why God created him and to remove every impediment I could so that he could fulfill his destiny. That's my pledge to him. It's going into his baby book. I think that is the role of a commissioning agent. Commissioning agents impart vision. You've got to be able to see why God made someone. They impart hope. You've got to go and say, hey, you can do this. Have you ever seen anybody that's not been commissioned? You know how you can tell somebody's not been commissioned? Confusion. They don't have staying power. They can't stay with anything. They don't know if they're supposed to do it. They're lost. Somebody's been commissioned, presses through. They overcome the obstacles. Nothing gets them down. Furthermore, commissioning agents remove impediments. You see what Fred did for Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard? was he kept removing the impediments. You know, first of all, he's got to give them the vision. Okay, now we've got the vision, we get excited. Now, what do we do to get, you know, to fulfill the vision? Well, we've got all these things to deal with. Okay, first thing is money. Okay, well, we'll work on that. We'll figure out a way to get you guys together, get you employed, so you guys can start collaborating on nights and weekends. Great. Okay, we're supporting ourselves with our day jobs and working on nights and weekends, trying to figure out what we're supposed to be doing. And then once you make your way, and you get to a certain point, you come to another obstacle, here comes Fred. Did you know that Fred let them use his lab to manufacture product? And this is a professor letting you use his engineering lab to manufacture product. And if he didn't have the right equipment, he picks up the phone and he calls a buddy. You see, one thing Fred understood is it's very important to be networked. Not only for, his, for himself, but for everybody that he's serving. He needs to be able to know who to call when there's a problem. So one night there's a problem. They need to be able to bake some paint on, on a piece of metal that's going to go on the front of this instrument. And they didn't have any way to do it. So Fred picks up the phone and calls Charlie Litton. You ever heard of Litton Industries? He says, Charlie Litton. Hey, Charlie, I got a couple of guys here that need, a, need to use your oven. You Can they come over tonight and use your oven? Oh, yeah, sure, no problem. So boom, they're over there that night baking this, this piece of metal. Now, you got to understand, Charlie could have viewed them as a competitor. He could have, but Charlie didn't. Because, see, kingdom thinking is not about, you know, looking at competitors and saying, I want you to lose and I want to win. It's about how do we all win? How does the industry win? See, and that's the way Professor Terman thought. He never thought about himself. It was never about me and money, the M&M syndrome. It was always about how can I help you fulfill why you're here? How can I give you vision? How can I remove the impediments? How can I serve you so you can be all that you're supposed to be? That's what a commissioning agent looks like. Now, you know, the incredible thing when you look at this is you say, wow, as, as good and as effective as he was, as powerful as he was, as, as helping HP become the company it was. And does everybody agree it was an incredible company? I would venture to say that company would not have existed were it not for Fred Terman. I mean, when you think about that, that's how powerful a role he played. If you read Dave Packer's book, uh, called the HP Way, he repeatedly refers to Fred Terman. In fact, when I was preparing for this event, I was reading the HP Way thinking I was going to share with you about HP. And I kept reading about Fred Terman. And I said, who is this guy? And so I've got to get on the Internet and find these articles about Fred Terman, and I discover this guy that nobody hardly knows who's behind this company, who, who basically birthed it. He birthed the company. He birthed Silicon Valley. 
Furthermore, he is the one that really birthed Stanford's academic standing today. Stanford University back then was a second-class university. He said, hey, we need to change this. We need to make it so people want to come here as much as they want to go to MIT to get a degree. And so what he did is began to realize, how do we do that? The way we do it is we have to look at how our students are received in the marketplace. He says, success for us is tied directly to success of our students. Now, this is, this is interesting. So suddenly he says, we, we need to figure out how to help them. It's not just a matter their, about their time here. It's about their time afterwards. We've got to help them find where they're supposed to be, help them find the work that will work for them, help them start businesses, help them to succeed in businesses, get the impediments out, the, out of the way. This is a commissioning agent. That's what it looks like. As a result of his work, his selfless work, Stanford University stands with incredible standing among all, all academic institutions today. So here you have a man that it wasn't about him. It's about the students. It's about the institution that he was employed by and the people that the institution served. It's about the community, turning that community into a prosperous community. And, and Silicon Valley is now one of the most prosperous places in the world. And it, all this funnels back to a commissioning agent by the name of Fred Terman. Now, here's the challenge I want you to walk away with. I don't have anything that I have found that says he's a Christian. Now, some of you may know he, whether he was or not. I haven't found it yet. But this I know. At least he did this by virtue of common grace. That is, the common grace God gives to every people. And that common grace is, if we obey God's principles, we will be blessed. That's common grace. So he obeyed God's principles. Whether he knew it or not, that's what he was doing. And that's why he had the blessing and the favor he had. And that's why HP exists. So the question is, what would it have been like had he been able to walk in the Spirit and do this? Where would it have gone then? What level could it have gone to? See, I think that's our challenge. Do what Fred did. Be great commissioning agents for our children our spiritual children, our employees, our students, everybody that we, if God puts in our path to, to commission, we need to commission them. And we need to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's kingdom work. That will be advancing the kingdom of God. That's taking dominion. And let me tell you what that does. That draws people. That draws people. And now you have an opportunity to share the gospel. You know the greatest way to share the gospel with somebody is have somebody come to you and ask for it. They want what you've got. They look at you and they say, wow, I want to be like you. What is it that makes you different? That is the greatest way to share the gospel. It's real hard to go to somebody that's not asking and try to share the gospel with them. They're, they're probably not all that interested and they're probably not going to be that responsive. But if they come ask you, you've got an open door. And that's what disciples who are out there advancing the kingdom of God, doing what God put us here to do, they draw people into that conversation and now we have a chance to be witnesses at a whole other level. Lord, give us the grace to do that. Give us the grace to be incredible commissioning agents, to see ourselves, to think beyond ourselves, to think 100 years out. Think about our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. What can we do today to commission them to do what God called them to do? One of the greatest pictures of commissioning in Scripture is David. David wanted to build the temple. He, got, he hired the architect, hired the engineer, built the, developed the plans, you know, put the resources together, got the people together, is ready to go do it. Nathan the prophet comes in. David says, I want to do this. Nathan says, go for it. 
Nathan goes home. He sleeps on it. God talks to him. Oops. Sorry, God, I didn't ask you. So he goes back the next day and said, whoops, David, I gave you a wrong word. God says, no, you're not supposed to build the temple. Your son is. David says, okay, I can do that. Solomon, come in here. I am commissioning you to build this temple, and I am removing every impediment. Here's the vision. Here are the resources. Go for it. That's what a commissioning agent looks like. Lord, give us the grace. Give us the grace to get that picture and to walk in that reality.